I was just explaining to Jade uh, who you are, and he's really excited to have a chat on the line. And as I'll tell him, I haven't broke the news to Jade yet, but you have a sister named Jade, right? Oh, wow. Yes, I do. Nice. <laughs> that's, that's great. <laughs> nice. Oh, man. Are you Asian, Chad? I'm not. I am Caucasian. There you go. Welcome to a Thursday Nerd She Wrote episode. It's summertime. Teams are getting back into camp, just kind of working out at their facilities. I think the workout videos and, and the Drew Hanlon videos, I think they, they've kind of slowing down a little bit because I think players are starting to either finish up their vacations or actually go to camp. And one of those guys who is at camp, a good friend of mine, a good guy around the NBA, Chad Forcier, who's the associate head coach of the Memphis Grizzlies, longtime Spurs head coach, spent two years with Orlando Magic under Frank Vogel most recently. Uh, a Seattle guy who I have so many questions for him because I um, I think you're a big Tar Heel fan. I don't really know how that that is. What, how did that start? You know what? Uh, it, it, it's strange, Tom. I, I, I am a huge Tar Heel fan. And uh, kind of the fun thing right now is I'm sharing an office with Jerry Stackhouse. So that's yes. kind of crazy. But anyway, uh, to answer your question. I was a nine-year-old kid growing up in Seattle, and I watched uh, Michael Jordan hit the shot, you know, in '82, and and uh, you know, win the championship. And I just, you know, it was exciting, and you know, they were a winner. And I thought, you know, I just got caught up in it, and they just became my team. So Stack, I think you tweeted recently the the Sports Illustrated cover with Stack with the Tar Heels, and I was a huge Tar Heel fan growing up too, which is weird because I went to Wake, but. Um, I'm in Tar Heel country now here in Charlotte and man, I was kind of rooting for stack to get the head coaching job here in Charlotte. Cause it would have been, it would have been awesome to be around stack. So what's he like as a coach after watching him as a player and worship, worshiping him as a player? Well, it's crazy. Cause you know, we're close in age. And so, and so, you know, I was obviously a fan of his as a college player and, and yeah, I kept my sports illustrated cover when he was college player of the year. I had a couple of issues of him actually, but anyway, uh, and then, you know, a few years down the road, I actually coached Stack uh, as an NBA player when I was an assistant in Detroit. So we spent a year together uh, back in 2001. Um, and, you know, I was working for Rick Carlisle in those days. So we've, we've got a little bit of a background. And uh, But it's been great. You know, we haven't obviously coached the team yet. But being around summer league and doing workouts with our guys and being in coaches' meetings and, you know, getting all our planning done, uh, it's been fun getting to, you know, getting to know Stack as a coach so far. He's, he's, uh, you know, got the same kind of demeanor that he played with in terms of that edge and the toughness. And, and he's got a strong disposition, you know, with defense and, and, uh, it's, it, I'm looking forward to spending the year, uh, you know, with, with all these guys Stack and everybody. Well, we got to talk about Manu cause you spent nine years with the Spurs and, uh, pretty much, the bulk of your coaching career has been with Manu Ginobili or at least uh, spending a lot of time with the guy. I know you were a player development coach and he didn't really need much development from a, from a standpoint. He wasn't very young when he came into the league, but I can't imagine um, what it must've been like for you to see him uh, announce that he was going to be retired. Where were you and how did, what did you do once you found out that Manu was, uh, was hanging it up for good? Yeah, I was here in Memphis at the at the gym, and I saw the the news flash pop up on my phone, and 
it's just one of those moments that, um, you know, you, you expected was, was coming sooner than later, but when it finally comes, if you're someone that's been around, you know, guys like Manu or, or Tim Duncan, when he went through it for that long, um, it, it just kind of takes your breath away. And, and I, you know, I just speaking for myself, it, it kind of, it, it did take my breath away and it, I, you know, you feel a, a heavy sense of emotion, uh, really mixed emotions because, um, you just feel so fortunate. I felt so fortunate to have spent nine years with Manu and, and I have so much deep appreciation for just, uh, who he was, first of all, as a man, you know, the guy that Manu is, um, <clears throat> you know, in terms of just the human and the personality, but to see him in terms of his talent, uh, the competitive greatness, uh, you know, the teammate that he was, I just took it all in and, and, um, it's hard to see someone like that go, but obviously, uh, you know, it happens to everybody. <laughs> well, I, I think of two things with Manu. One is every game in Miami. It was like the Beatles were in town. Him, when he goes into an arena on the road and I guess Miami, you can, you can speak to this Argentina fans everywhere just everywhere. Like three hours before the game, there's like hundreds of fans with the flag just screaming Manu. I mean, every city, right? Yeah. There always seemed to be somebody from Argentina everywhere we went. And I agree with you, Tom. Uh, Miami had a very, very heavy presence. The two places that stand out to me the most would be Miami and Chicago. I don't know. I mean, for some (laughs) reason, there's a heavy following in Chicago as well. And, uh, and there would be, it just seemed like they'd be there by, you know, the hundreds and they'd have their flags and they were, you know, singing their national song and, you know, just, you're right. I mean, there's just the following that he had and the way, um, you know, the kind of support he had and, and how he endeared himself to his fans was just spectacular. I mean, yeah, I think everyone knows that he just kind of, Wears his uh, passion for life, passion for the game on his sleeve. And that was no more apparent than the second most vivid memory of Ginobili was after 2013 game seven, the press conference with Ginobili. uh, You were there um, behind the scenes. It was a devastating loss against the Miami Heat. Game six, though, was all anyone could talk about was losing that game in the final seconds there with all those opportunities for the Spurs to close it out. I thought Chad, that was it for Manu after 2013. I thought it was, it was just too, too much emotionally to come back from and come back and do what they did in 2014. What was that like that, that locker room after the game six and game seven with that team, uh, Ginobili uh, eight turnovers in game six and they couldn't close it out in game seven. I don't know how the Spurs ever came back from that. Yeah, Tom, those are, those are memories that will live with me forever. And, uh, there's, there's deep scar tissue there, but, but, uh, you know, I feel so, so privileged to have gone through all that, you know, the the good and the bad and to, to watch Manu again in terms of, and it wasn't just Manu, obviously what we went through in 2013, uh, and to your point, both, both, both post-game locker and game six and game seven, uh, were really heavy. And, and Manu, I don't know if there's a player that takes losing harder or worse than Manu, especially when he knows that he, you know, he, he knew that he had such a, a heavyweight role on the team in terms of what, he, you know, what he had to carry on his shoulders. 
to give us a chance, you know, to be, um, you know, the best we could be. And, uh, for sure, the images of, of just the devastation and the shock and, and, and the pain, uh, are, you know, burned in my mind forever. And, you know, just <laughs> being able to see 2014 when somehow, you know, we had the opportunity to redeem ourselves and just to see not just Manu, but to see Tim and, and Tony and Manu in particular, uh, just the joy on their faces to see that, you know, that they had been able to do that again together for, I guess at that point would have been the, the fourth time that, that the three of them had done it together, if my memory is right. And, uh, you know, just to see the elation and, and just the, the, the pure joy in 2014 on those three guys' face is, is something that'll, that I'll never forget. I mean, that, that should be like leadership uh, textbook 101 is how do you get that team with veterans who could hang it up? I mean, Timmy, uh, Ginobili, and Tony Parker could have just been like, you know what? That's enough. We're going out. What is Pop? Like, how do you how do you come back from that? Like, what is the speech that Pop gives or what is it that RC or the organization? How do you get a team like that to pick them up, pick the pieces up back together and and come back for 2014 with the with the vision of like, Hey, like we can beat this, these guys, we can win. We can go through this entire season and go back into the finals and play LeBron James and take them down. Like, how do you, how do you as a coaching staff get them ready for that? You know, that's part of pop's greatness. And, uh, and, and really it's not just a coaching thing either, Tom. Um, that's, that speaks to the, to the character and the true competitive greatness of those three players, you know, uh, since we're speaking about those guys right now. And um, there's an element of it when you go through an off season and you finally get that, that, that distance and, you know, you get your perspective back and you realize that the line at that level between winning and losing is so razor thin, um, you know, and just to look at the way everything played out with game six and game seven, uh, I think that everybody just came back and, and, and that provided the fuel, um, you know, to make another run at it and just to, to regroup. And, and I know that again, I guess in terms of the competitive greatness of those three guys and what they expected of themselves and what they wanted to achieve and how they wanted to add to, you know, to their legacy and, 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 you know, just what they wanted to accomplish together, um, and not to leave any of the other teammates out, but those guys obviously were our leaders. And, and when you look at the, those, those four people, uh, pop and Tim and Mono and Tony, um, you know, all the rest of us were really fortunate to have a chance to intersect with those guys for as long as any of us did. There's a video of Ginobili on the bench where he is, uh, he's like a middle school prankster where he takes the cup and puts it under Tim Duncan before he sat down. Did you see that one? I saw it actually. I'm glad, I'm glad, I'm glad I, I'm glad I wasn't the only one. <laughs> so like, what is, what is Ginobili like off the court? Uh, because we always see him on the court. He killed a, he killed a fucking bat, uh, or just swatted one out of thin air. There's so many like <laughs> on court stuff that he's, it's crazy, but like, what is he like off the court where he's just like, who, who swats a bat? Like who has the, the comfort like who has the balls to swat a bat out of thin air? Like who does that? Or even the hand-eye coordination and catch it like that. It was yeah. unbelievable. 
you know, and, and I'm sure, you know, everyone sort of calling him Batman after that. And, uh, you know, the, <laughs> I'm so glad you bring that up. Cause I was there on the floor. It was pregame and I was out on the floor and actually was an eyewitness to that thing. And I, you know, it was like right away, everyone's mouth just dropped open. Like, can you believe what Monty just did? And then right away, <laughs> as soon as those words come out of your mouth, all of us that know Monty was, yeah, hell yeah, we can believe what Monty just did. Cause that's Monty, you know? And so, uh, you know, but here's the thing, Manu, I said this a few minutes ago, that Manu, the person, Manu, the man, you know, the human being, the, you know, the teammate, uh, he's amazing. He's one of my, my favorite guys that I've ever coached and, and somebody that I have, you know, the ultimate respect for, um, you know, completely about covering everything, you know, and, off the court, he is incredible as a, you know, as a husband and, as, and a father to his three boys and very engaged with his family, uh, you know, loves them dearly and, and you know, it, it cares so much about the time that he gets to spend with them. Uh, but then the teammate that he is, is phenomenal. I mean, he's a connector. Um, he loves to, you know, to do things that are, that are fun and, and go to, you know, eat with, you know, three, four, five teammates, um, you know, or more, whatever, you know, loves to have the, the camaraderie. Um, he, he's a, he's a, he's kind of a philosopher. He loves knowledge and he loves to question things and he loves to, um, you know, watch interesting things on YouTube and interesting things on, on television about, you know, just, <laughs> just, just, he just, he's inquisitive. And he, and he questions and he wants to understand. Is there a show that he wanted you to get on? Like, was he like, Hey, you need to watch Homeland. God, I don't remember. All I remember is he always was, you know, talking or thinking or watching about something that was just interesting and curious and just kind of didn't seem to be what most guys on an NBA team or locker room are, are spending their time thinking about. And, um, and again, a big questioner wanted to, you know, just always question why something was, or if something was, it, you know, things of that sort. So, um, you know, he'd get fascinated by, you know, things like a, a solar eclipse or, you know, meteor <laughs> showers or, you know, all sorts of things that he, you know, he knew they were coming and he was, uh, you know, going to get, <laughs> get an education about why those things happen and, you know, why, why everyone else should care about it and things of that sort. So is he the guy who's teaching everybody or he's coming to you, Chad and like, Chad, explain to me this lunar eclipse thing that's happening. No, he's the guy that, you, you know, where, where this happens for Mono a lot is, uh, you, you know, if you're, if you're a trainer and you're in the training room, the things that you're exposed to as a trainer, which was not me, of course, uh, and all the chatter and the banter and just, you know, the casual conversation while guys are in there getting ankles taped and, you know, ultrasounds and cryo saunas and all those kind of things. And, and so if you're passing through or around that environment, you get to, you know, hear it a lot, but at the dinners, when they're sitting there, we'd have our team dinners too. And, and you could guarantee Manu was, you know, he wasn't going to be sitting there, uh, you know, talking about how he did on Fortnite last night or on 2k, you know, yeah, he, he was going to have some kind of a of a deeper level um, conversation that was going to he was going to try to engage people in, and um, you know so so you get exposed to it like that, and all of us would you know would have those moments of just 
conversations with him or, or being a part of a, of a group conversation that he seemed to always be in the middle of. So there's probably as a player development coach for a long time, uh, now it's, you know, head assistant coach for the Grizzlies. You've probably seen the game evolve, not just at a, a NBA level, but um, the Euro step, why is he so good at it? And I know it's probably been around um, the Euro step, the move itself, but why was he so good at it? And do you remember like when he started implementing it into his game, like as a skill, as an NBA skill, I mean, he just made, he put that on the map, didn't he? Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> I think Manu probably is the guy that ultimately you know, branded it the best. I'm not sure that he was the originator of it. Or certainly not the, the, you know, the only guy that, that, that did it, but uh, he just, he obviously just played with such a flair and, and I'm not sure, you know, wh- where he got it or how he got it. Um, but it's just something about the way he moved. And I, I, I always wondered sometimes if part of it was just, you know, him being a lefty, which I think can throw people off sometimes mm-hmm. in terms of how he would move like that. Uh, I think that might've, you know, contributed to, you know, to how he could set people up. Um, but just his whole, just his whole style and his, his foot eye coordination and things like that. Um, and some of the things he would do, you know, you've seen millions of highlights of him, you know, making bounce passes, the rolling big guys through the leg to defenders. You've seen him dribble the ball through the leg to defenders and step through and, you know, and go recover his own dribble, you know, things that are just just wild he's like a basketball houdini right like he just he somehow gets out of the biggest traps yeah without a doubt he just he just had some of the you know some of the most uh spectacular you know ways of getting things done um that was just that was just done in a style and with a flair that that i hadn't seen too many i haven't seen too many players play with before um so yeah, <laughs> the Euro step is just for sure one, one thing that I that I think he that he branded the best and and became a signature is. So uh, yesterday we talked on the podcast about the 2011 Memphis Grizzlies series, which Ginobili in Game Five, I believe it was, hit the game uh, tying three pointer in the corner or the go ahead was it the oh it was the tie game tying three pointer down by three. There's like. Uh, I think it was McDice passing it in and there was a scramble. And of course, Ginobili comes up with it just because that's what Manu does. And three guys, which you, who you're working with right now, Mark Gasol is like blanking him on the, on the corner. And then Tony Allen, who's maybe the best perimeter defender in the NBA, you know, traps him. And then there comes Zebo. So the three of those guys are on Ginobili with the closing seconds of the game down by three. Ginobili somehow gets out of it, out of the three person trap, goes, retreats to the corner in front of your bench and hits the game tying three falling out of bounds. And I texted Shane Battier, name drop. I texted Shane and I was like, you remember this play? And he goes, he was nails behind Kobe, maybe the biggest competitor I have ever faced. Unbelievable. That, I mean, and I'll tell you what, if you have that clip, I'd love to see that again. Cause I'd have to dig in and go find my, find my game. Cause I haven't thought about that. I can barely <laughs> remember the whole sequence. And I, I, it, 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 it blows my mind that that's, that's on your mind so freshly, 
because uh, you know, again, I, you've been so through a lot of battles so with the Spurs. Yeah, 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 and 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 that's the thing. I mean, in San Antonio, we played the Grizzlies so many times in the playoffs, and and obviously being there for as long as I was, and having so many you know deep playoff runs and series and and moments, there's there's a lot that I have to go back and remember. But but uh, God, I'd love to see that clip again. And that that's yeah, I'm he just jogged my memory. That's something I hadn't thought about in a long time. So you guys have a game. Have you already circled the game against San Antonio this year and how weird that's going to be for you? Just knowing, you know, Tony, Tim and Kawhi and Manu are not going to be in uniform. Yeah. You know, I haven't even had that thought yet, Tom. Um, and now that you put it on, on my mind, it, 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 it makes me, uh, it makes me feel weird. You know, it makes me feel, I don't know, I guess some degree of, of, of sadness or strangeness and uh and with that in mind um i don't look forward to it actually you know it's it's uh it's gonna be it's just gonna be so odd and um you know (laughs) i can't believe how quickly things change especially when you see in, in in one summer to see tony go to charlotte and manu retire and you know, Kawhi's gone and Danny Green's gone and Kyle Anderson came here with us. And, you know, um, I've only been gone for two years and to see the the whole face of that team, obviously, uh, Tim retired the same summer I left to go to Orlando. So just to see everything change that quickly, um, is just really, really strange. And, and the first time I see, you know, see that team, whether it's on, on film or, you know, in person is going to be, um, bizarre, really unusual, bizarre, bizarre is the best word. Bizarre is the best word. So, but there's, you know, it's strange because any of us that got to be a part of it for so long, um, there is, you know, real emotion there and there is, uh, you know, of course the, the, the nostalgia and all those other kind of things. Um, and they obviously had such a long, long, long run together that, just to see none of them there anymore. It, I can't even, I can't even imagine what it's going to be like uh, the first time I look at that. Well, I mean, when we, when we hung out at summer league this summer, uh, you were saying how you guys were having like a Spurs alumni event where just a bunch of Spurs personnel would come back and just hang out for, uh, for a night just to just like old college roommates or something like that. I don't think that many organizations have that just like the, the pop you, um, relationship network that you guys have had, right. They're like, that doesn't happen in, in other organizations. Yeah. It's really something cool. And, and, and what, what's happened is, um, over the years with the, the way that, uh, the, basically the internship program had worked in San Antonio, uh, in terms of how we would hire young guys to come through our video room and help with our basketball operations and, and help with our player development. And, uh, you know, RC would have his guys that were helping on the front office side. Um, Chip England and I, a long time ago, started this with two guides, uh, you know, that had left the Spurs that we had worked with, you know, as young guys that had moved on to, to, to you know, new opportunities for themselves. And, we went to a steak dinner one night. It was just the four of us. And now here we are uh, this past summer in 2018. And we've continued to do this every year. And we had like 50 people in the room. 50? And they were all guys. Yeah. You know, and they were all guys that, that had at one time or another come through 
the door basically as, as interns with the Spurs in those kind of capacities. And of course, you know, a few coaches that are, that are sprinkled in there now too, but it's, it's something where we're looking at it now, like we can't believe this and everybody's spread out over the, across the league. And, you know, David McClure is a name that, that, that you know, of course, and he, <laughs> he came through the door and uh, you know, he was an intern for a couple of years with us and then, and then left to get a, you know, a player development assistant coaching job, you know, you know with the Pacers. So we've got a handful of those kind of guys that are all, that have all moved on. Some of them have front office positions and a lot of them have become coaches with other teams and, and uh, and then of course the current interns that are still there are there. So it, it creates this fraternity uh, where everybody can kind of connect. A lot of people intersected. A lot of people miss each other. But you come together for you know two or three hours that one night during summer league, and people can you know uh, reconnect or meet people that are you know behind them or whatever. And it's it's become uh, a, a lot of fun. So Jade, you you don't know Chad uh, in person, but this dude looks like he's 25. Um, <laughs> you've been in the NBA for how long? The 15 years? How long is it now? I'm going into 23 this year in Memphis. Oh my god. <laughs> that's I mean yeah. I guess that's I crazy. Yeah, it's 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 been a long road. <laughs> your your first NBA gig was with the Sonics, was it? Like you're you're, right. you're an intern with the Sonics back in the day. That's right. I got an opportunity uh, training camp in 1992 in Seattle with the Seattle Sonics. Uh, George Carl was the coach uh, that actually was George's first training camp because he had come in the season before, right around All Star break, uh, for a fired Casey Jones and had taken the team over. So it was George's first uh, training camp, and uh, that's when I got started. Gary Payton, Sean Kemp, a bunch of guys like that. Oh man, and you're a Seattle guy. I'm a Seattle guy. Because <laughs> <laughs> that, so that that was those that are the was, glory uh, years, that man. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, you know that was a really special time, uh, not just in Sonics history, but but that window of time um, in, in Seattle it was about a five, six, seven year window where basketball. In, in the city of Seattle was really on fire. Um, you know, the, the Sonics had had a great run during that window. Uh, University of Washington men's basketball uh, was, you know, had some of their best years in that period of time. And really the prep basketball in Seattle was was outstanding. There were a lot of guys, I mean, division, high level division one players coming out of the city all over the place. And a lot of guys uh, going to the NBA uh, you know, getting drafted in the first round, having success. Um, so, you know, just in terms of just the, the culture of basketball in the city in that window of time was something that a lot of us that are Seattle guys look back on and say, wow, that was, that was a hell of a lot of fun and a hell of a run, you know, uh, just at all levels. So what, what is, uh, what do you think? Is Seattle's going to come back? Sonics, like, would you root for the Sonics Man. to come back as the Sonics, or you want to start something different? Like, what is your feeling? There? I don't know, Tom. I, you know, I was really, really sad to see, you know, to see Seattle, you know, lose the team. 
And especially, you know, in light of that, I mean, there is a lot of rich history there for the Sonics going back for, I mean, they had the team for, I think, 40 something years. So, um, and obviously, you know, won a championship there in the, I think, 79 with the championship with, you know, Jack Sigma and Lenny Wilkins was the coach and, you know, things like that. But anyway, um, you know, the people of Seattle love basketball and they love the Sonics and, uh, it was sad to see him go. So I, they're deserving of getting a team back. I hope, I hope somehow someday that happens again, uh, just in terms of the pride that the, you know, the people feel there and, and, and the passion they have for it. Um, you know, I think it's a, it's an all American city and, and, and I hope, I hope someday that it gets, that it works out. I don't know what they call them. It would, it would be strange, I guess, if it wasn't the Sonics. Yeah. Um, but you know, who knows? I, it, I think the bottom line is the the people there uh, probably wouldn't care so much in the end with what the name turned out to be as long as they got their team back. Cause I know they love NBA basketball. So then you go from the Pistons. I mean, I think you go Oregon state, then university of Portland. Is that right? And then the Pistons. Yeah. How did you get into the yeah, NBA? So, well, so what happened was even in the five years that I was working uh, up there with, with George Carl and with, with that group in Seattle, I never thought about uh, trying to be, work in the NBA or be an NBA coach. Uh, at, at the outset, all I wanted to do was be a high school basketball coach. And I figured I'd probably be a you know teacher, I'd teach English or history or something like that. I, I really just wanted to be a high school basketball coach. And then as you know, the course over the course of five years, kind of evolving, you know, with Seattle, um, I started getting exposed and, and made some relationships with some college coaches in the region. And ultimately that, uh, turned my attention to, you know, more towards trying to see if I could pursue a college coaching career. And, uh, I got an opportunity to go to coach at Oregon state. So I left the Sonics and I, and I went there and, um, and as you said, you know, spent some time at Oregon state and also at university of Portland. And I was really just completely locked in on trying to see if I could develop um, a successful college coaching career at that point. And, you know, we, we got fired in both jobs, uh, meaning, you know, the whole staff <laughs> were not, not winning enough. You, you got and, fired. Uh, yeah, it wasn't the staff. It was just you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, uh, and really what happened uh, when I went back into the NBA, I, I did go to Detroit, like, like, you know, and Rick Carlisle was, uh, that was his first head coaching job. And he called me and offered me, you know, a spot to come, uh, you know, run his player development at that point. And I had gotten to know Rick during my time, uh, as a college coach, I spent uh, three or four summers going down to Honolulu every summer to work at Pete Newell's big man camp. And, uh, in those days, especially when it was down there and coach Newell would, of course, still alive and running the camp, the full-time teaching staff was only like six coaches and Rick Carlisle was one of them. Tim Gergerich, my mentor was another one. Uh, Mark Ivoroni, Kiki Vandaway. Uh, anyway, so I had gotten to know Rick over the course of three or four summers of going down there to work that camp. And, um, so that kind of gave him some familiarity with me and, and I got that phone call and that's what led me back, uh, in the direction of the NBA. Was, was Eric Spolster a thing at university of Portland when you were there? Like, did people talk about him? 
Yeah, for sure they did. I, I, again, I didn't know Eric in those days. And again, I think I told you this one time, Tom, when I coached there at University of Portland for, for what was one season, the reality of it was it was only about six months of my life because by the time we started, uh, you know, by, by the time we started our, our camp, whatever it was in first of October, and we were fired before the first of March. So anyway, so it was ended up being about six months of my life, but I didn't, uh, I didn't have a relationship with, with Spo in those days, but he was, uh, he was very much, you know, talked about and, and, and people there, you know, love Eric Spolstra. People don't know he played college ball. Um, and he was on the court when Hank gathers, uh, collapsed. Um, and you know, he played at university of Portland. He was, a. um, I guess he, he's as his Wikipedia says, he's like one of the top, uh, pilots, uh, Portland pilots in school history and like all these statistical categories. So he can play, he can play. And oh, I'm yeah, sure yeah. He, he had a, yeah, he had a great career and, and a very, very decorated career. And like I said, everyone, everyone loves him there. He's, he, he's definitely uh, a, a household name. If you're in the, in the Portland pilot community. Yeah. Well, I want to zoom forward to uh, a moment in NBA history that you had a front row seat to um, November 19th, 2004. Do you know what that date is? Yep. I'll never forget it. I know exactly exactly where I was and I'll never forget it. (laughs) Dude, I was watching the video just to just to kind of refresh my memory of the malice in the palace. And there's someone, a young guy who is patting Ron Artest, and I'll call him Ron Artest for this because that's what he was known as at the time, patting Ron Artest on the chest while he's laying down on the scorer's table. And who is that guy, Chad? Well, that would be that would be like the 11-year-old version of me since you said I look like I'm 23 now. So I don't know <laughs> if my math is right. It's probably not. But I, I know when, I, when I've seen that before, uh, my daughter gets a kick out. And I've got a 15-year-old daughter. She gets a kick out of looking at it from time to time or showing one of her friends, you know. <laughs> and, and, yeah, I look like I'm about, you know, I don't know, 10 or 11 years old. But <laughs> many moons ago, <laughs> 2004. Yeah. So, so what happened that night? Like, why was it like a fierce game? Was it, were, were they, uh, back and forth? Like you knew something was brewing between, uh, Pistons and, and I guess you, you knew people from both sides. Yeah, for sure. So I had obviously coached, um, you know, almost all those guys in Detroit, uh, you, you know, two years earlier or one year earlier, actually. And, uh, they had beat us in the playoffs. Uh, actually, in the com- my mind's fuzzy right now, Tom. I got to go back and look. But the way I remember it, right, is they had beat us actually in the conference finals. Um, you know, a few months earlier. So here we are in November, and we're probably all of, you know, twelve or thirteen games into the year, and we're in Detroit, and it had just been one of one of those nights. We're on a national TV game on ESPN. And, um, you know, it was a, it was a marquee matchup. They, they, we were, you know, Detroit and Indiana had been rivals for a couple of years. They're very competitive games. And, and, uh, we'd gone in there and, and, uh, and, and beat up on them, you know, in their, in their gym that night. Yeah. Yeah. And by the end, by the end of, I mean, you know, it, it, we were up, I, we probably beat them. It was like a 20 point win and, and we had just had our way with them that particular night. And, um, you know, we were young and, and talented and, and brash and <laughs> things like that. And, and they didn't like it. And again, we were, we were rivals. I mean, it was, 
you know, there was no, no love lost between either team and, and, uh, and it had been like that for a couple of seasons. So by the end of the night, with just the, the frustrations and the, you know, and the pride and probably some trash talk and things of that sort, um, you know, everybody that, that saw what sparked it on the court between, between Ben and Ron, yeah, uh, that's what triggered it just in terms of the frustration. And, um, and then one thing led to another and, and we've all seen it a, a million times. How did you get to be the Ron Artest, um, like sensei, like calm him down guy? Well, here's what happened. So that night, Reggie Miller didn't play because he had his, he had a, like a torn ligament or, or, you know, something, a broken bone in his hand. I forget which, but he had his hand in a cast uh, that particular night. So when everything goes crazy and, you know, all the coaches go out on the floor and, and everything's going on between the players and all the back and forth, Reggie, who had his cast on and was in his suit, was because you know Ron right away went over there and, and laid down on the scores table. So Reggie was taking <laughs> care of Ron, and yep. and I, and I'm watching. And you know the rest of us, you know, your assignment as a as an assistant when that kind of stuff goes on is you know the first piece you got to make sure is that none of your guys are running onto the court because we all know the you know penalties that, that come with that. So anyway, Reggie you, runs. You're right the peacemaker. Away. You're the diffuser, right? You're, you're trying to diffuse well, the yeah, situation. Yeah. Right. You're supposed to be. So anyway, so Reggie right away goes to Ron and he's going to try to make sure that there's nothing else that's going to happen with Ron doing anything crazy or, you know, Ron trying to get back to Ben or, or vice versa. So he's doing that. And then all of a sudden when things continue to escalate on the floor and nothing gets calmed down, and it starts to get crazy. Uh, Reggie gets distracted and goes out to try to attend to something else. At which point, Ron was laying there unattended, and I had Ron and I had a relationship because we, you know, he and I worked out together all the time. So, anyway, so I I swoop in right away, knowing that like you know if if he if he's off the leash, there's no telling what might happen, and uh, you know so much for my leash because I was over there, you know, obviously just talking to him, saying you know let's you know let's just get out of here, this this thing's over, you know let's not get involved in anything, just kind of that kind of thing. And, and then one glance, I, yeah, I take literally in a fraction of a second, I'll never forget it in a fraction of a second. I take a glance toward our bench just to see if everything was still under control on our bench. And in that very second that I turned my head away, that's when the, whatever it was, the beer, the cup of ice, the Coke, whatever the hell that was, the fan threw it and it hit Ron and he was up like it was like someone that had electrocuted and he was up and off that table so fast. I tried to shoot string tackle him and, and missed him. And <laughs> I could, I couldn't get, him, you know, and, uh, and, and he was up there. And so, you know, next thing we're all going up to try to, you know, get up there and I'm streaking down the sideline, jumping, you know, my suit, jumping over the scores table, stepping over laptops and TV monitors, you know, trying to find an angle to get to the stands to get to him. Uh, but again, you know, we all, we all got there too late. Wait, so did you, did you actually get into the stands? Cause that, cause then it's oh, an yeah. obstacle course from there. I mean, forget the scores table and the computers cl- trying to climb over oh, a bunch yeah. of seats to get to Ron. Who's, who's out of his mind at that point. And by the way, is there anything more um, disrespectful than having a beer th- or a drink thrown at you and splashing your, like, there's not much, there's not much that would tick someone yeah, off probably- of that. 
Right, probably second to having someone, you know, spit on you or say something yeah. about your mom, I guess. But just about but that. Yeah, I mean, for yeah. sure. Yeah. And it, it was crazy because by the time we get up there, I mean, you're talking about being, you know, I don't know what it was. It was eight, 10, 12 rows up into the stands. And, uh, and yeah, I was up in there. And, and by the time I got there, I, you know, I was coaching with Mike Brown in those days. Mike Brown was already up there trying to, you know, get to run and, uh, you know, Rick Mahorn, who I had a relationship with, he was sitting there doing TV. So he's trying to get up in there. And, and, um, by the time I get there, Steven Jackson's up there in the middle of all of it. We've all seen it a million times and I'm trying to cover Jack's back because fans are, you know, swinging on him from behind his back. It was, it was absolute mayhem. Yeah, and on the way out, you're covering Rick Carlisle's head with a coach's like notebook. I don't know. You probably don't remember this, but on the way out, you like had to shield Rick Carlisle from just all these missiles from the audience, from the Detroit. It was in Detroit and all these fans were just tossing beers, sodas, whatever they could they could get their hands on at all the players and coaches. And you had to shepherd Rick Carlisle out, like covering him like an umbrella. It's so absurd. Like, I can't even imagine yeah, what that must have been like. Yeah, it was crazy. And, and that's, that's true. And what some of your listeners may not, if, if you know, people haven't seen it or, or, or don't understand, uh, you know, that era, some of the listeners may not realize um, that in those, in those times, you know, at that point in time, uh, if you look in an NBA arena now, all the tunnels that the teams take from the court to the locker room now are covered. And, you know, they have some kind of an awning or, or, or yeah. what have you, uh, you know, back there. And that was a direct response to what happened in the mouth of the Palatine because what was happening, it wasn't just fans dumping popcorn and, and, and pouring their drinks, which is exactly what they were doing. You know, anything people had, they, they were throwing. It didn't matter if they were throwing nickels or dimes. Uh, and, and, and in fact, if you look at it, people were throwing chairs, you know, some of the courtside chairs. Uh, yeah. There was at one point, you know, chairs that were getting thrown. And so, you know, even subsequent to, to that whole thing, all the loose chairs are, that might be on a bench or whatnot are all uh, like, like chained together so that they're not loose. And all that stuff was a response to that, to that episode. But yeah, uh, when we were in the middle of that environment, it, it felt like it lasted for 30 minutes and, and um, it lasted a long time, but, it, but it felt like it lasted 30 minutes and it was, it was really frightening. You ask anybody, player, coach, who was a part of that, or fan, of course, um, it was a very, very frightening environment to be in, and uh, and a very dangerous one, of course. And you know what? You know what struck complete... me? You know, you know what struck me, what, Chad? What... How little security there was. Oh yeah, I mean, it was all you I guys. Think... Nope. There was no, there were, yeah. there were no cops. There were no security personnel. It was just. You guys trying the coaches and not even the refs. Like if you watch, which is kind of weird to think about is Tim Donaghy's on the court with his, like his hands in his pockets. And it's like the referees, I think Tommy Nunez, there's like a photo of him separating, um, you know, Ron and, and Ben at one point. But a lot of the time it's just the coaches who are, who are trying to separate everything. And there's no, there's no authority whatsoever. Right. I mean, it was crazy. I think what happened is, is it was something that had, you know, obviously had never been seen before and, uh, and became just, it, it spread like wildfire. So suddenly caught everybody by, by such surprise that I think everyone just ended up being 
paralyzed with like, you know, just absolute shock. Like what is happening here? And you know, what do you do? And, uh, and so you're right, Tom. I mean, there was, <laughs> it was kind of like everybody had to fight for themselves, fend for themselves to get out of there. And, um, and again, running out of that tunnel. Yeah, I, I did. I just, I happened to be with Rick and stuff was raining down from all over the place at any and all of us. Um, and yeah, it was, it was a frightening, you know, chaotic, uh, awful, awful situation of being and, and, and what, um, what an ugly part of, uh, of the history of our game. What a, did he get the right guy? I've always wondered this. Did Ron, you know what? I actually don't know. I really actually, I don't <laughs> Cause know. I don't because... even think you're even looking in the right direction when it hit. You just been like, who just right. threw that? Yeah, no, I didn't. So no, by no means did I see who threw it because in my, in that fraction of a second, when I glanced toward our bench and that, that thing came in and hit, uh, that's all I saw. The other corner of my eyes, I saw it hit Ron's chest and then I saw him, you know, obviously, you know, bolt to the stands. So I have no idea, uh, who did it. And without, you know, with the exception of maybe trying to go back and look at a video of it or whatnot, I don't know. I don't know if he got the right guy or not. <laughs> <laughs> so you're, you're crawling into the stands. You try to diffuse that thing in the stands. How did you end up over with Rick? Like, were you, were you like, all right, that's good. I'm going to go over and, and protect Rick at this point. It wasn't so much that I had that, that, uh, you know, intentional strategic thought. I think it just happened to be just a random reaction where by the time we got back out of the stands and things were still going crazy and think, again, things are raining down on people from the court and the fans are, you know, outraged and all that other kind of stuff. By the time we try to get off the court, I just happened to be in, in his proximity. I don't, I don't recall any intentional thought of going to seek him out or, or going to, intentionally do that you know for him i just happened to be with him and i i think it was just kind of instinctual and you know just i don't know i i, I don't remember having any any uh you know any in, intentional thought about it i think it was mostly just reactionary well this is um this is quite the segue so john hollinger um you work for uh the memphis grizzlies now and john hollinger a friend of ours is I guess, uh, the VP of basketball operations. So now you're with an internet God, NBA internet God. What's John like, uh, as a co coworker, a colleague, and does he go to practice and stuff? Does he, does he hang around and he, does he have his coffee in his hand? Because he's notorious among media circles of just always having a coffee in hand. You know what? So I haven't, obviously we haven't gotten to do a ton, but, but I've gotten to, you know, to get to know John a little bit this summer and he's been in the gym a good amount of time, whether it was during summer league practices or pre-draft workouts or things of that sort. And, uh, I really enjoyed, you know, talking basketball with him and, and exchanging some ideas. And now that you say it, I hadn't really paid attention to the coffee piece. Oh, it's now a thing. That you say it, the, the light bulb goes off and I would <laughs> say, yes, indeed. He's had his coffee in his hand. I hadn't even really paid attention to that. <laughs> No, man, he's got a, he's got a coffee. He knows more about coffee than anybody. Um, and he's a Northwest guy too. So he, uh, he knows his, he knows his coffee. So if you ever, if you ever wanted to know, uh, what, what's the best coffee or ratings of coffee, player efficiency ratings on coffee, he would, he would, he would have it for sure. For sure. So definitely ask yeah, him about it. Well, next time. We, 
we have exchanged some thoughts about his days living in Portland. Yes. Yes. So, uh, talk to about the team. This is a weird mix. Uh, a good mix is so- something that strikes me about this team is you're like the Spurs where you have a mix of really all-star veterans with some young talent that you have to groom and mesh into, uh, just the overall veteran laden team. So you have Marcus all, you have, uh, Mike Conley, Chandler Parsons. These guys have been around the league for a long time. And then you got like a teenager and, and Jaron Jackson jr. Who has about as high of upside as anybody in this draft and a bunch of young, um, you know, trying to prove themselves in the NBA. You must like wrap your arms around this situation. Cause it probably reminds you a little bit of the Spurs situation. Yeah. You know, when I got the opportunity to come here, Tom, um, obviously the team that we have today, as you and I are talking, it has already, you know, morphed from where I was when I came in here in May. But, uh, but even in, in May, I saw a, a lot of promise, like like you're describing. Now, as I sit here and talk to you, it's you know, I'm nearly September first, and look at who we are at the moment. Uh, I'm even more excited than when I first came, and I don't know uh, what kind of a team we can become. I'm not sure, you know, who will be, but I love. Uh, the, you know, the changes that the rosters had this summer. Um, I love the, the philosophy and the value system that, that has been pursued here uh, this summer in terms of trying to, to, to you know, improve and, and, and modify this roster. And I'm really excited to, you know, to get after it. Uh, obviously, things will start getting busy here um, next week when a lot of guys start getting back into town after Labor Day. And and gosh, I mean, camp's three weeks away. So well, I'm really looking forward to, to seeing, you know, who we who we are going to become this year. Did you cross paths with anyone outside of um, Kyle Anderson with the Spurs, obviously, but any other players that you have a history with? Yeah, you know, uh, I was with Shelvin Mack last year in Orlando. Oh, yeah, that's right. And yeah, and I got to coach Kyle, as you mentioned, his his first two years in the league uh, when I was in San Antonio with him. And actually, Jermichael Green's been here, obviously, for a few years. And I, I, I got to coach him in San Antonio because that's kind of where he started. He, uh, you know, he had a little cup of tea with us for the Spurs, but then ultimately played for our Austin G League team. And um, so I got a little bit of exposure to Jermichael in those days before he really, uh, you know, became, you know, entrenched and, and, uh, and, and established himself with an NBA career here in Memphis. So what, what can you tell us about Kyle Anderson? Cause he, he's obviously the slow-mo guy, but he, um, he's really good defender, really smart player. Um, but a lot of people were surprised that, that the Spurs let him go to Memphis this summer, but that doesn't say that the Spurs don't like him. Obviously they really like him, but what can they expect from Kyle um, in his first year with the, with the Grizzlies, like what kind of player are Memphis Grizzlies fans going to have? I enjoy getting asked this question, Tom, because, um, I always feel like just kind of the average basketball fan, uh, doesn't really appreciate the basketball player and how good of a basketball player Kyle is, because as you mentioned, you know, whether it's the slow-mo thing, you know, how he moves, uh, you know, not, not being the quickest guy or the fastest runner, the highest jumper or all those other kind of things. Um, he may not always have it all wrapped up in the sexiest package, but this guy is a high level basketball player. 
um, who has been a winner at every level of his career, you know, going back to the high school has done nothing but win and be, uh, you know, a meaningful, uh, part of, 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 you know, of a group of, you know, that, that wins and he just does so many different things. I mean, he's just kind of, um, you know, kind of a utility man in, in, in some ways he's good on both sides of the ball in a lot of ways that just, uh, you know, don't, don't grab a hold of you immediately, uh, you know, if you're just the average fan. And he's not going to always uh, stuff up a staff, uh, you know, a stat sheet that people want to just look at. But if you watch how a team functions and if you understand, you know, the nuance of, of the sport, um, I'm so excited that we got Kyle. And, and he's just, uh, he, he's a very talented player who's very versatile you know, plays multiple positions, uh, can dribble, pass, and shoot, knows how to play defense, you know, in terms of he's long, knows how to use his length, uh, and and he's just got a high IQ. So he, he, and one of the best things that I, that I like about Kyle, Tom, is he knows who he is, and that yeah, is so much tough. of a battle in this league. You know, he just he knows who he is, and so many guys, especially young guys, uh, just don't know who they are or, or refuse to uh, accept who they are, you know? And so they fight against that battle all the time. And Kyle just always had this, this maturity and this, um, you know, this ability to, you know, know who he is and embrace that and be comfortable in his own skin and has always had this just quiet confidence that he knows uh, he belongs and he knows he's a good basketball player. And that's the best way I can describe it to you. Uh, you know, those are just, that's just the way I look at it. So I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled that we were lucky enough to be able to, uh, to get him out of San Antonio. So, uh, before you go, I know you had lost, uh, some weight over the past, you know, a couple years where I saw you, uh, earlier this season, I was like, Whoa, Chad, what happened? And you're like, man, I just, <laughs> I just decided to, I need to, I need to drop a couple LBs here and get back into shape. And, after a season where a bunch of coaches had to leave the sidelines to uh, take care of their health and their mental health and just, you know, headaches and uh, sleep deprivation and all this stuff, um, you seem like you're on top of your health. And I know it's a battle for everybody, but on the NBA schedule and the coaching grind, like, how do you do it? Like, what are some tips that maybe our listeners uh, don't really understand how grinding it is to be an NBA head coach? How do you fight not, you know, at one in the morning, you know, calling room for service and getting a burger and fries and like, how, how do you fight that? And where did you learn that from? Well, you know, I, I know you and I have talked about this and, 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 you know, we've kind of shared a, a similar journey in trying to, to address uh, just being healthier and things like that. And um, you're right, Tom, I, I got to a point where I, I started seeing a lot of guys that were either coaches that I knew of, maybe not my friends, uh, some of whom were um, retired NBA players. And then obviously some, some retired NBA players, even that, that weren't coaches, but just I just felt like I went through a window in my life and about a three or four year stretch there where I just kept hearing of these guys that were close in age to me, maybe in a five or six year window, you know, that were just dying, you know, heart attacks or aneurysms or things of that sort. And, and as it kept happening, I just started to become increasingly aware of 
just how damn important it is to be taking care of yourself um, with respect, especially to, to what you're doing with your diet, you know? And, and, um, and I started being, I just started to really wake up to it and feeling very, uh, just so, so aware of, and so responsible to my family, you know, and, and just feeling so much hurt for people. I didn't necessarily really even know who had, you know, died younger than they probably should have and had left, you know, uh, you know, family, young families behind. And so it just kind of, that, that was my, my, really my first, um, and most meaningful inspiration to just get serious where I finally was like, this, this is a big deal. And, um, so I, I really did just try to, to make some disciplined, you know, dietary changes. And like what, what was your big dietary stuff. change? Like, what was it? Well, what I started with is, um, I knew I just came to, I guess everybody has different things they believe in and different things that work for them. And I, 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 I believe that, but for me, I decided that I needed to attack sugar and I was never like a, you know, desserts guy or a candy guy or anything, but meaning like, you know, carbs, you know, all that kind of stuff, whether it was breads or pastas or, or, you know, cake or whatever, you know, any of that kind of stuff. So I got, um, I got real serious about, about that. And, um, and, you know, got gluten out of my diet, a bunch of different things of that sort. And, uh, you know, paid more attention to, to really the, the amount of alcohol I might consume. I, I, you know, I love to drink wine and, and, uh, would, would, you know, I cut back in terms of, you know, that type of a thing. And to your, to your point, Tom, like the season is a whole nother animal. I did this in an off season and, which was hard enough, but then going into the season, just kind of for me, uh, competitively, I mean, and just competing with myself, I just looked at it as a challenge and, a, and an obstacle that I wanted to overcome and was determined that I could. And so I went into last season and I just said, I'm not going to let this season, you know, um, just disrupt what I accomplished over the three or four month, you know, summer in, in the off season. And, um, and it was hard. I mean, I'm, I'm not going to lie. I mean, it's not easy when, when you, you know, your human body, especially when you're reacting to stress and fatigue and all that kind of stuff, you know, you get the natural desire to, uh, you know, want to do the things you said, whether it's, you know, grab a bag of chips on the team charter or call room service for a cheeseburger at one in the morning when you get in, you know, and, um, I just found ways to travel you know, I took things, I took some of my own types of, you know, foods on the airplane that I would, where I would just, there's certain things I wasn't going to eat that was on the team charter. And I would have some of my own snacks. Uh, what are, what are your snacks? Room. What do you, what do you, what are you bringing well, on you know, the chart? A, a lot of times I would just try to have uh, fruits and vegetables with me. And I started trying to find ways uh, when I could to, um, you know, go find a market instead of just going to a restaurant all the time. When I could, I'd go, I'd go try to find a, a market like a whole foods or, uh, what's the one that, that, that we meet at in, in, uh, in Charlotte from time to time, whatever, like that type of a market. Yeah. The public market. Yeah. On seventh street. Yeah. Charlotte's such a new city that like, they're just, they've, they're, they're just getting their training wheels on. Like there's not like a huge food scene here. So, um, yeah, that's a, that's a nice little spot. Cause there's a bunch of different restaurants and vendors and open air. Um, you know, it's something you would see in Portland, like everywhere. Um, but yeah, 
it's hard. It's hard on the, on the 82 game grind. And I almost feel like it would be antisocial for you to be like, yeah, guys, you can go to dinner, but I'm just going to go to fresh market. I'm going to go to whole foods and like get myself a meal. You know, and you're right. And it, and it would be, and I, and that's one of the struggles you go through and I didn't do it that way. So what happened is I just had to be, uh, I just became more educated on the kind of things if I was going, you know, with the guys to, you know, to, to eat at a restaurant on what things I was or was not going to eat, how things were prepared. And I would get specific when I was making my order. Uh, uh, there are certain things I just stayed away from. And otherwise I would make sure that it, you know, it was being prepared, you know, like I, I don't want sauces and I don't want butters and then just, you know, making some olive oil and, or, you know, don't put anything on it, you know, you know, whatever, something like that, get a piece of fish, have, have your vegetables, things of that sort. And so you're ordering the salmon that, and you're like, Hey, is that salmon prepared with butter or is it olive oil? That's, 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 yeah, you I mean, I literally, yeah. I mean, you know, just because I, I, if I was in those situations with, you know, with the coaches or the team, um, I knew that if I was eating the wrong stuff, it was just, it, it just was going to have a cumulative effect, especially over the course of, you know, of an NBA season. And, um, and so I just, you know, sometimes it, it, at first it probably felt a little bit awkward or cumbersome to have to, you know, spell that out for the, you know, to the server when I was making my order, but in the end it was successful and it turned out to really not be that hard. And I think more and more restaurants, are used to, uh, you know, being aware of people's dietary, you know, restrictions or, or modifications. And a lot of kitchens are used to it. And I wasn't really asking for anything extreme. Just, you know, hey, if, like I said, if I was ordering my salmon, I just wanted it, you know, cooked in olive oil, not in butter. I'd, if it's served like this, I don't want all the, you know, the sauce that comes on it, you know, that kind of a thing. Cause the sauce is like, what sugary, like what's wrong with sauces? Well, a lot of those things, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of the things in the sauces that are either going to be heavy with, you know, creams or butters or sugars for sure. Uh, you know, same with salad dressings. A lot of the salad dressings that, you know, that you can choose, uh, you know, have a lot of sugar in them. So, right. Like, Jay, um, do you like, do you feel like you're getting like healthier by eating like a Caesar salad, which is like loaded with cheese and cream on the Caesar salad dressing? I'm not. Yeah. I, 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 I don't want to, when you go to like a restaurant, you're like, I'll have the Caesar salad. And you're like, you know, patting yourself on the back, but the cheese, the cheese isn't good. <laughs> yeah. Load up your cheese and get all your croutons. I think when you grate cheese, it's much healthier for you, by the way. <laughs> when it's a thinly sliced. Eat your cheese. Yeah. You eat your cheese with your romaine instead of with your wine and it's healthier, right? Yeah, exactly. Don't ruin my world here, guys. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I know. Jade is oh a guy, Chad, who prefers to drink uh, Corona, drink beers while laying down because it's easier uh, digestively. Is that really – is that your theory, Jade? What's your no, laying down? No, no, Tom. It's the opposite. Oh, yeah. oh. When you eat, after, yeah, you eat after you eat, you have to stay up. You want to stay vertical. Right, Chad? So, so, eat, <laughs> so, so, so drink Please Corona's up, on Chad. your feet, right? Drink, Drink Corona, corona on, on your feet. feet. Yes, while watching the game. <laughs> yes. I mean, you know. Is that is that kind of like having the, the stand-up desks that people are using? In fact, Tom, I think I heard a rumor that, that John Hollinger might have gotten a stand-up desk recently. Oh, we got to follow you up on You know what, it. though? That I had a back issue. I had a pinched nerve in my back, 
and the stand-up desk helped cure it. I'm convinced. Because I, I everybody was, says that's one of the best things you can do is do your work standing up for as long as you can. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I think I think uh Coach Thorpe, who's not on the call today, but he uh sits on like a medicine ball when he that's works the ball. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I've seen that too. Yeah, I haven't seen if, if John has that desk, but I think somebody mentioned that in the last day or two. I can't even see John sitting down, like oddly. I mean, I've oh, seen yeah. him. Watch, I've seen him watch a game, but that that makes sense to me. But other than that, seeing him sit down is anomalous to me. <laughs> well, no, I mean, we know that going back to to Jay drinking his Coronas on his feet, that John's drinking his coffee on his feet a lot. So maybe there's a parallel. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Oh man. Um, so we've got, uh, I had five Manu stats yesterday that we, we, uh, we talked about, but one of them is the fact that he played over 40 minutes in a game, just 12 times in his career and how ridiculous that is that, uh, that an NBA hall of famer is so good. And so it makes such a positive impact on the game that he can be so good and have this kind of, uh, cult like status around NBA players. By just playing like 30 minutes a game max every night and like what kind of person it takes to be willing to sacrifice like all the numbers that you can't have when you're just playing off the bench. You know, it's crazy. A thousand games in his NBA career and he's only gone over 40 more than 40 minutes in a game 12 times and nine of those were overtime games. That's so crazy to think like we're going to put this Hall of Famer on the bench and just stick him there for half the game. Yeah, and you know what? Like, I'm so not surprised that you're the one providing me with this stat because that's so <laughs> fitting. And I'm telling you, I get, I get more of my, my like shocking, amazing, you know, did you know moments from you? It's ridiculous. I had no idea of that. I mean, I had no idea. But to your, you know, to your broader point, uh, undoubtedly, I mean, to see a guy that you know obviously just never got the type of minutes that. I mean, you know, clearly he was an NBA starter on any team that he that he would have played for, uh, and having been a guy that that was willing to accept coming off the bench for as many years as he did, and and you know, play, uh, you know, ultimately pops away and with pops philosophy and and with a completely you know a complete spirit of team first, like whatever the team needs and let's just win. Um, again, goes back to speak to exactly who Manu is and, uh, and to exactly what he was all about, which was just like, you know, let's win. And, and how, however, this thing's going to work, but it, it, uh, it is fascinating. And that's, that's something that was never lost on pop. I mean, I pops on, on the record many times over the years of, of talking about, um, you know, his great fortune, uh, to have someone like Manu that was willing to do that and who, who, who accepted that. And ultimately, um, you know, a lot of us have always said if Manu Ginobili can do it, you know, any player in the league should be able, should be able and be willing to do it. Uh, and that sounds great, but unfortunately, uh, not everybody has that same type of spirit or attitude. Yeah, it's. I'd imagine you say Manu's name a lot while in Orlando and Memphis. Just like, hey, here's something that he used to do. Like back when, uh, back when I was with the Spurs, Manu used to do this. I'm sure you say that a lot. Yeah, I, I try to pick my spots and, and, and it's kind of a fine line, Tom, because, you know, you pick your spots where you think something's, you know, applicable, but you also uh, need to kind of, you know, determine which players have a natural 
you know, gravitation for, for that kind of stuff in terms of just, um, you know, who, who, who's a fan of who, or who respects who, or who, you know, like that kind of stuff. Cause turns out this player hates Manu Ginobili. Well, you know, you never, you know, you never know. And, and, and some guys, uh, you know, those kind of references to all time greats, um, that resonates with, you know, with a lot of guys to your point and some guys, it doesn't, it doesn't go very far with. All right. Well, um, Mr. Peacemaker, Chad Forcier, you can actually follow him. <laughs> How did you find you, you were the, uh, a pioneer on the Twitter like how many assistant coaches or coaches in general are active on Twitter and you got the handle NBA coaching? Uh, I don't know. I, I, it was probably just some, uh, you know, foolish moment of boredom where I, where I decided I should venture into, you know, kind of the modern times and the changing landscape of the, of the, uh, you know, culture around me. I figured I could, you know, poke my nose into that and, and, uh, you know, Maybe I, maybe I should have, maybe I shouldn't have, but I don't know when, how that originally uh, happened. We got to get Jade verified. Jade, are you verified yet? No, no, we got to get you first. And then we're going to get Chad uh, verified. We're going to get you. I don't even know how to do it, Tom. I don't even know how to, I don't even know how to go about doing this. Don't worry. I know some people. Yeah. Come on, Tom. (laughs) Tom knows the guy. He knows Jack. Dude, it, it is kind of weird. I had a, uh, I, I was DMing back and forth with Jack from Twitter. Who's like the C he was like runs Twitter. Um, just to get a video, just to get a video on Twitter. It was so the DeMarcus cousins video ran over the two minute allotment. And I was like, ah, like, what are we going to do? We can't put this video out on Twitter now. And so I was just like, ah, I think Jack from Twitter follows me. Uh, so we DM back and forth. And sure enough, he green lights to the video and allows it to be more than two minutes on the Twitter feed. So maybe I'll hit up uh, the CEO of Twitter. Maybe, maybe I'll do that. Still maybe. Yeah, Tom, you, yeah, maybe you, if, I, if you I'm do. feeling good. Yeah, if I'm feeling nice. You, you, do, you do know people. <laughs> exactly. Apparently. Apparently. So, um, very imp- hey, very good, luck with, good luck with Memphis this year. Um, I'll be rooting for you and, uh, as people succeed. Uh, and you know what? It's going to be weird. I don't even have uh, on the schedule right now. I'm not looking at it, but it's going to be weird going into San Antonio. I know you, you kind of call it home uh, for you because you spent so much time there as a coach with the Spurs. But um, I'm rooting for you guys and uh, have a great season. Um, and also stick to, stick to the olive oil, not the butter. Okay. It's going to be tough, but but think of this conversation. We'll be on you. Jade's going to be on you for drinking, uh, you know, horizontally. If he hears, if Jade hears a rumor, a whisper, a hint, a waft of Chad Forcier drinking a Corona horizontally, your ass is grass, man. You're done. Well, there won't be there won't be Corona, and I can't even imagine drinking a glass of Pinot Noir laying on the couch. That's so disturbing. There's something so wrong about this. It's all in your chest. Oh man. Exactly. I feel like Ron Burgundy was doing that when he was uh, on his hiatus. Oh God! Uh, all right. Well, thanks so much, Chad, uh, and good luck with training camp and everything. I'll see you around, man. Thanks for having me on, Tom. See you, Jason.